Thanks for listening to the Best of Coast to Coast podcast. Become a Coast Insider, and you can hear this complete conversation as well as recent shows featuring guests discussing new cases of the troubling cattle mutilation phenomenon, worrisome instances of clandestine CIA torture, and the evidence that the lost city of Atlantis may have really once existed. Check out these programs and many other fascinating episodes waiting for you in the Coast to Coast Archive by heading over to coasttocoastam.com and signing up for Coast Insider. Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you, Brian Krim, our special guest for the next couple hours. He is the John Mills Turner Distinguished Chair in the Humanities at Lynchburg College in Virginia received his doctorate in modern European history from Reuters University. His teaching and research interests include the Holocaust, military history, modern Europe and intelligence, and national security studies. Dr. Krim was an intelligence analyst for the Departments of Defense and Homeland Security between 2001 and 2005. His work, Our Germans, Project Paperclip, and the National Security State. Brian, welcome to the program, and this is a fascinating subject for me. Thank you so much, George. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be with you, and I've been studying it off and on for uh, about 20 years now. So, yeah, it is truly fascinating and touches on so many different levels of scholarship as well. A lot of our listeners know what Project Paperclip is, but there are many that come on that don't. Could you explain that for us? Sure. So Paperclip uh, is essentially a planned conceived in the final months of World War II, but put into action in that summer of 1945, to uh, envision a long-term exploitation of Germany's scientific and technical infrastructure for the benefit of primarily defense, but later even uh, commercial interest. So it's a, you know, a two-year program from 1945 to 1947, but it'll survive under different names and all the way up until the 1970s, honestly. Now, the Soviets had a similar type program at the same time, did they not? They did. All, each ally planned to exploit, as they put it in the technical, uh, their technical reports, exploit German technology. Uh, but the Soviets were, you know, had a different take on it. They were kind of trying to catch up and would go for quantity over quality, which I think was more just the fact that they weren't able to attract uh, the, the the best minds the way that the Western allies were. I was going to say, how did we get Werner von Braun and the Soviets did not? <laughs> well, it's interesting because Penamunda, which was the complex that built the V2 initially and um, was on the Baltic coast and firmly in Soviet territory, but uh, the SS, which was in control of the program in the final year of the war, really after the um, assassination plot against Hitler, the SS really took control of everything, uh, they feared that this would be, un- that they would be under the control of the Soviets and uh, moved the German scientists into the interior of the country. And somewhere along the line in April, May of 1945, as everything is disintegrating, uh, Werner von Braun took his uh, brother, Magnus, and about a dozen other of his trusted uh, leading uh, team leaders into the interior of the country toward Bavaria, where they knew that they would come into contact with American troops. So they deliberately moved toward the advancing American army, knowing that that would be their best shot to be able to continue their work with uh, all the resources they could ever imagine. 
The Germans, under the guidance of von Braun and others, were launching V-2 rockets into London and Britain. How far ahead, Brian, were the Germans with missile technology compared to the United States, for example? Well, it's a good question, and I think most uh, historians of science and technology would say that they were about five years ahead when wow. it came to rocketry. That's is, amazing. I mean, even though we enormous. had the atomic bomb and they were really right. close to getting it, in terms of uh, missile technology, they were five years ahead of us? Yeah, and, the, the, and as you noted, with the uh, unknown factor of how close were the Germans to the atomic bomb, the real fear that Eisenhower had and his uh, technical advisors was what if they could marry a, an atomic device to what they already knew were successful uh, guided missiles. And so that was what part of the, the urgency of getting the team, uh, the rocket team, under Allied control was that if this, not only would this um, prevent some miracle weapon that the Germans could launch at the last minute, but also they're thinking ahead to the Soviets. What if they also uh, were able to marry a atomic device mm-hmm. to a captured missile? So on two levels, there was this, this great fear um, and, the, the, and it was more the unknown. It wasn't so much that we knew they had these capabilities. It was we don't know, and certainly we know that they have a, a guided missile. But um, that unknown is what really drove what was first called Operation Overcast and then later Paperclip. Brian, speculate just for a moment for me. What would have happened had Germany and Hitler obtained uh, atomic weapons with their missile technology how far would they have gone with using it? Well, that, yes, it's a it's a it's a haunting question, and it's one that uh, I think I think they would have annihilated everything. Uh, there was no doubt, especially in that desperate moment. Now, it's a question: is would they have used it on the Eastern Front or the Western Front? Uh, clearly, most of the war for Germany lied in the Eastern Front. At really, even during D-Day, 80% of their army was still engaged in the East as opposed to the West. Mm-hmm. So it's likely that the, the Soviets would have been the primary target. But the idea of holding a city like London uh, and even Washington, they had plans for something called the A-10, um, or, which is a, a V-3, you might call it, uh, was a plan to actually have a, a rocket that could be transatlantic, um, to hold a city hostage like that would have been crucial in whatever peace negotiations would have occurred. But I think, honestly, the Eastern Front would have been a, uh, an actual target. Uh, and that's I mean, had Hitler, the whole nature of the war. If he had hit simultaneously Moscow, Paris, London with atomic weapons, he would have won the war. It's Oh, absolutely. And it would have been a... Um, and that certainly Nazi propaganda was promoting this idea that there were these wonder weapons, not only for their own population, but for the Allied uh, audiences, that, you know, this, that there was perhaps a danger in, in um, pressing the war to the point of, of completely annihilating Germany. I'd be speaking this show in German with you. <laughs> yes, and uh, My God. that would have been good for German departments around the country, but that's about it. So so the Operation Paperclip occurs. We get the, the cream of the crop. Uh, they come to the United States. Van Braun, of course, as I remember during my youth, was very instrumental in developing the rockets, the Saturn V, everything it took to get us to the moon. Uh, y- yes, I think that's yes and no. I mean, he's an excellent team leader, and one of the, the things that I, I found this great quote from um, a Caltech physicist named 
Fritz Zwicky, who was one of the first to really analyze all the technical achievements of, of the V2 team and, and had this very honest assessment. He called the V2 uh, and, you know, the, the German rocket team generally, quote, a technical achievement of high order due less to the activity of any individual genius than to the determined and enthusiastic cooperation of a large number of only moderately technical individuals. And what I think he means by that, and what was Von Braun's true talent, is that he could take something that was on a, in a, a blueprint and turn it into a, an actual uh, working device and mass produce it. And that is something the United States lacked when it came to rocketry at the end of the war, and something that NASA wanted when it was decided should it be an army agency or be a civilian, Von Braun had already proven himself as someone who could take, who, could, who was an organizational genius more so than his own scientific prowess as a physicist. He was a custom made for, I think, the, the American military industrial complex. Take the blueprint and turn it into a working device. That's not a small accomplishment, but it's also not... Um, Something that a it, you could also argue that a number of American scientists could have done the same thing. He just was given more authority and power than he even could have imagined during the Third Reich. Our special guest for the first half, Brian Krim, his book is called "Our Germans: Project Paperclip at the National Security State." If you are of German heritage, this is not intended to be an indictment of your heritage by any means. We're talking about how we exploited Nazi technology after World War II. Brian, why didn't we take advantage of Japanese scientists after we won that war? It's a good question, and it's a, and it's a complex one. Uh, the first thing is we certainly were concerned about uh, their progression with an atomic weapon, as we were with the Germans. Uh, again, it was an unknown factor, so we immediately sent... Uh, similar types of teams, uh, technical teams, T forces, they were called in the in the uh, in Europe, but the similar idea to evaluate uh, Japanese scientists, and they certainly they made major advances in aeronautics, long range bombers, and but um, for one, we didn't need to extradite them ex- from Japan to the United States because we weren't dealing with. Four pow- other, pow- no, three other allied powers, including the Soviet Union. We could, use, if there was anything to exploit, we could exploit them in country. Um, but there's also, it has to be said, and certainly the scholarship will prove this, that we had a very racial attitude that s- considered the Japanese inferior. On the same level, we assumed that the Germans were superior. Mm-hmm. Both of those were inaccurate. Uh, but there is a a lot of discussion about should we bring Japanese scientists to the United States, and we did bring about 30 for something called Project 77 uh, to deal with some boutique technology they created. But the FBI and some other agencies said do not bring them to the United States. It will inflame racial passions. It will be hard to cover. We can, a German can blend into America pretty well, but a Japanese scientist cannot. So the combination of both uh, having complete control of the Japanese islands not having to worry about the Soviets uh, stealing them from us, but also um, racial animus, that maybe they're not just as, as good as the Germans. And so there was this uh, um, debate that went on until 1948 uh, 
about whether we should have a similar program. But given the problems Paperclip prov provided a lot of uh, bureaucrats, it was a hassle. It was also publicly, and once it was made public, unpopular. They decided why why make that mistake twice with science with a, a race of people, as they called it, who are more hated than the Germans were. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.